Continuing in our study through Leviticus, we come this morning to Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 through 18, and our New Testament complementary passage is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 25. So please open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 19. And in honor of God's word, please stand. Leviticus chapter 19, beginning in verse 9, hear God's word. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely. And so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall fear Your God, I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur guilt, sin, because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Thus far in the reading of God's word, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, and continuing in the reading of God's word. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. As far in the reading of God's word, let us pray. 
Almighty Father, as we have read and heard your word, would you now cause it to bear fruit in our lives? In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. At its very foundational level, what you and I just read in Leviticus is the Constitution for the State of Israel. That's how the passage opens. When you reap the harvest of the land, this is to be the rules by which the nation of Israel lives in the promised land. And the picture that we see here is a beautiful, beautiful picture. It's a picture that is a bold and beautiful statement of what God can do amongst the lives of people that are surrendered to Him. And we'll see as we look at this picture, this beautiful picture of a community of love. But, again, inserted into that picture is a serpent in that garden. And then, beloved, the joy and the good news is that you and I are called to live this in a loving church. So we look first at this community of love that is presented for us here, that's painted for us here. This community that is open, that has one law for the sojourner and one law for the native. This community in which no injustice is done to the other. This community in which neither the poor are preferred at the courts of justice because of their claim upon need, nor the wealthy preferred at the court of justice because of their ability to bribe and pay off. But there's, a, there's an impartial, blind justice, the scales... It's a, it's a land, as you read these verses, as you read the ethic that is here in this land, how the people of God are to dwell. They're not to har- harvest the corners of their field. Because even in their legitimate toil, this is their field that they purchased, that they planted, that they've weeded. In their legitimate ownership, they say, I also have a duty to my neighbor. Imagine a nation's constitution which says your constitutional responsibility as a citizen of this nation is to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what those words said. (laughs) Just, Just read it for yourself. This is the rule for living in the land of promise for God's people as they come into the land of Canaan. It's a community, it's a nation, it's it's, it's marked by love. And if we look at the story of the nation of Israel from one perspective, if we look at this story of this community of love from one perspective, then we see something that is remarkable. We see a glorious story. 
We see a story of people who are exiled, enslaved, oppressed, delivered by God's mighty outstretched hand from all their enemies, brought to his holy mountain and given the guide for how they would live with him and dwell with him, called to go into this land of promise that he has sworn to give to their fathers before them. There's a glorious king that God raises up. He raises up this king that finally subdues all the enemies in the land. A king whose throne will be established forever. But that king, because he's a man of war, is not allowed to build the temple of God. The place where God will be declared on top of Mount Zion. No, that is reserved for his son. The epitome of wisdom. The one to whom all the nations flock. Think of the Queen of Sheba. They sent gifts. You've got this beautiful land that we see a picture of here. Where people are caring for one another. They're loving their neighbor as their self. It's a land of righteousness. It's a land of wisdom. It's a land which is protected from Egypt, from Assyria, from Babylon. That's, remember, all throughout the New Testament. That's the story. Is, is, are we going to trust in God? Are we going to trust in man? This tiny little light, this tiny little nation, insignificant among the nations, but a tiny little nation that is protected from the great, empires of its day, and a tiny little nation whose greatest heroes are the righteous King David, the man after God's own heart, the great poet, as well as the wise Solomon, the giver of wisdom. It's a beautiful picture. And beloved, do you think Maybe it was attractive. Do you think maybe it called people from the world over to come and see? Do you think maybe people like a Moabite woman, when she said, your people will be my people and your God my God, while she didn't know that she now was going to be engrafted in as the, as, as one of the heir or one of the uh, ascendants of the Messiah. The nations would stream to such a beautiful sight. You would not have to advertise a thing. It would be known around the world. This nation in which every little farmer leaves a little bit of his harvest for the poor. This nation in which no one would ever take the most powerless, the day worker, and cheat him or even delay his wages. This nation in which every man, woman, and child wakes up in the morning and says, God, as I walk in your statutes today, help me to love my neighbor as myself. Do you think that nation 
would be known around the world. But as I've given that one perspective, that one glorious picture of what the nation of Israel is, was, there's also a lot of ugly in there, isn't there? David didn't do so well. Solomon didn't do so well. The nation itself didn't do so well. And it's interesting that right here in our passage this morning, we see that serpent again, slithering right into the middle of the garden. This beautiful picture that's presented to us of a nation which is a nation of love for God, for one another, and for the sojourner. Right? That's the passage. That's the exhortation. Now look at verse 14. You shall not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block in front of the blind. Can you think of any uglier picture? Can you think of anything uglier than someone who would just have a grand old time coming up behind a deaf person and heaping curses upon their head. Can you think of anything uglier than someone who knows this person's blind, maybe sees them with their little white stick, looks at his friends and goes, hey, watch this. Is that not just the base, the, the, the worst of who we can be to curse the deaf, to put a stumbling block in front of the blind. A picture of a human heart, even here in this land that is nasty, it's just not right. To curse the deaf and to put a stumbling block in front of the blind. And this beautiful image, this beautiful scene of of people caring for their neighbors, of people loving one another, we get this nasty, ugly, don't do this thing. That serpent in the garden, beloved, is in your heart and is in my heart. Any time that you speak, about someone and they are not there to hear it and if you are speaking critically about that someone is that not cursing the deaf? Is that not the very definition of heaping calumny upon the one who cannot hear it? When we entrap other people, when we use other people for our own purposes, when we know that we are manipulating them and they are unaware, 
Is that not putting a stumbling block in front of the blind? Every single time, beloved, you and I hurt, gossip, entrap, injure another person with our words, with our intent. This same revulsion that you and I would have at somebody who goes, hey, you want to see something hilarious? Watch. I'm going to trip this blind guy. It'll be a hoot. You would say, no, I don't want any part of that. The same revulsion that we would feel towards someone who comes dancing gleefully behind a deaf person, going, you're fat, you're ugly. We'd be saying, come on, this is not funny. This is not right. And yet, this is what we do. Even in this beautiful land, even in this promised land, there is this, this seed. And we have before us here in the entire passage from 9, and, you know, incorporating verse 14, but from 9 all the way down, we have this beautiful picture of both and. Both what we are called to be, both the aspirational. We want to be people who are generous for one, towards one another. We want to be people who love our neighbors, ourselves. We want to be people who bless and do not curse. We want to be those who love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength and love our neighbors, ourselves. And it's lived out in our lives. And at the same time, we see within us that venom, that serpent. This calling was before Israel. So let me ask you, how did this calling, love your neighbor as yourself, how did their national constitution get twisted into the lawyer coming to Jesus in Luke chapter 10? And if you recall the parable of the Good Samaritan, it opens, the lawyer desiring to justify himself said, and who is my neighbor? God gave us a real, just open, clear, love your neighbor as yourself. And so what did we do with it? Define neighbor necessarily this or that. How close can I get? <laughs> because I want to justify myself, but I don't want to love my neighbor. How many of our conflicts, personal, in our homes, between parents and children, spouses, brothers and sisters, how many of these conflicts in the covenant community, the church itself, are simply 
a lack of love for one another. A lack of being willing to show mercy. Now we shift to the third and final point, which is the loving church. And here is where I hope that you don't drift off, because if you've been following the train of thought so far, you might be left saying, okay, so the big takeaway here is I need to be better about giving to other people, and I need to be more loving to other people, and I need to... Love the Lord my God better than I do right now. It's easy for us to see this as a list of rules. And beloved, if you see this, or if you see Christianity, if you see the gospel, if you see any of it as a list of rules, then you are going to despair. My, my favorite non-inspired book of all time is uh, Pilgrim's Progress. And in the progress... The interpreter meets Christian, and he says, do you see that light over the narrow gate? Christian says, yep, I see it. He says, keep that light in your eyes, go to the narrow gate, and you'll be relieved of the burden on your back. On his way, if you know the story, he immediately runs into Mr. Legalist, and Mr. Legalist sends him to Mount Sinai. He says, listen, there's civility over here, there's, there's lawfulness over here, Mount Sinai is the way to go. That's the place you want to be. And the more that Christian walks up the hill of Mount Sinai, the greater that burden grows on his back, and the more the mountain looms over and terror over him, until finally he's frozen in fear and can't take another step. At which point Mr. Interpreter finds him again and says, What are you doing? I told you to go to the narrow gate. If you look at this passage and you go, oh, okay, I need to give a certain portion of my, I need to do this and this and this and this and this and this and this. Then do you see that it becomes Mount Sinai for you? Do you see that it becomes yet more rules and things for you and I to do? And what we're talking about here is the distinction between The heart that loves Jehovah, loves his law, it's his delight day and night. And the one who sees it as a ritual and a set of rules and a list of things and doing this and that. And you and I can be just as guilty. You and I can be just as guilty when we come away from a message in which we see the beauty and the glory and we say, I've got to do more. We're missing what is the power of the gospel. Because this image here of an Israelite farmer who cares for the poor, 
who cares for the sojourner. This image here of the one who is careful in each word is a morsel of sweetness and light. This image here is one who is a righteous man, who is the perfect Israel, who has fulfilled this and all the rest of it too. You're just seeing a small slice, and in our struggle to recognize it, <laughs> this small slice is a pretty bad one when you, I compare myself to it. You're just seeing one tiny little slice of the obedience of Christ for you. When Jesus says, through Paul, you were dead in trespasses and sins, and God raised you up together with Jesus Christ and seated you together with Him in heavenly places. By grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That grace of God that is poured out on the repentant child is the very same power that says you are righteous. So that you and I can look at this text and all the other texts and go, yeah, Lord, this is aspirational. Help me to be better about this. But to know that God looks at you and sees His Son. To know that God looks on you and sees you in His Son's obedience in his son's righteousness. Now to come back to where we began, what would a nation, what would the impact of a nation be that lived out this? What would the impact of a loving church be? Let's take it quickly, just from the nation to the church. Because in Psalm 2, The Father says to the Son, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations. You will break them in pieces like a potter's vessel. God will cause the nations, and is causing the nations, to stream up to this beautiful city on Mount Zion. This beautiful image that we see in verses 9 and following in Leviticus 19. This beautiful picture that we see of a land of joy, a land of care and love. This beautiful image, God is drawing the nations up, flowing to the top of Mount Zion to dwell with Him there. It's a glorious picture, and the question becomes, how do you and I get a part of it? How do you and I take a part in this glorious promise? Well, we're not left in the dark. We're told exactly in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. This is to the church of Thyatira. Jesus says to them, I know your works, your love and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Now, that's what he commends them for. He goes on to talk about the Jezebel, 
But then he comes back and says, to those that I've just commended, to those of you that I've just commended, I give, this is down in verse 24, to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. Jesus says in Revelation, I received from my father that promise that the nations would be mine. And I give that authority, I give that promise to the faithful church, to the one who perseveres, to the one who is faithful. You will be my means of claiming that promise of my father's. And so the question is, how do we define faithfulness? How do we define the grand? How do we define the glorious things that all of us want to do for Jesus? How do we define this mighty call? I know your love. I know your faith. I know your endurance. Your latter works exceed the former. It's a complicated way of saying growth and grace. Your love, your works, your faith and endurance, and your growth and grace. It sounds so unimportant. It sounds so banal. You'd much rather I called you on a glorious quest. You'd much rather I called you to go do something powerful and glorious. But you know what? I think if you and I loved our neighbor as ourself, I think if you and I in the church were, would never even dream of cursing a deaf person, would never even consider putting a stumbling block in front of a blind person. I think that you and I would then be a city on a hill. That's what we are, brothers and sisters, at our best. That is where we as individuals and that is where we as a church are beautiful, inviting and enticing. When the people see hearts that reflect the awareness of God's grace to us. That that as I look at Leviticus 19, I walk away, yes, saying, I'm not good at that. But beloved, as a child of God, I'm not good at that is my starting place. If you start looking at Leviticus 19 and saying, yeah, I'm not good at that, then, beloved, there is one who is perfect at it. There is one who even now reaches his hands out and says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light and you will find rest 
for your souls. This picture of rest, comfort, beauty, joy that is what the land is was always a vague picture, a fuzzy picture of the spiritual reality that you and I have now in Christ. You and I now have this peace that can pass understanding. You and I now can know that we can be lovely and beautiful as He is, not in order to earn something with Him, but simply because He's lovely and beautiful. And I truly do want to be just like Him. That is a beautiful aspiration. And it's an aspiration that can only begin when you hear the words of the gospel. You were dead, and he raised you up together with Christ. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that even as we see the glorious picture of a land full of love for one another, as we acknowledge that even in our own home, It doesn't reflect that as we ought. So, Lord, we see our only hope. Jesus Christ has fulfilled your perfect law. And in him we are holy. So that our growth in holiness is joyful aspiration, not duty. Joyful desire. Nourish and strengthen us to that end, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.